of Human Bondage by William Somerset Maugham, Chapter 44, Segment 1. But notwithstanding, when Miss Price, on the following Sunday, offered to take him to the Louvre, Philip accepted. She showed him Mona Lisa. He looked at it with a slight feeling of disappointment, but he had read, till he knew by heart, the jeweled words with which Walter Pater had added beauty to the most famous picture in the world, and these now he repeated to Miss Price. "'That's all literature,' she said, a little contemptuously. "'You must get away from that.' She showed him the Rembrandts, and she said many appropriate things about them. She stood in front of the disciples of a mouse. "'When you feel the beauty of that,' she said, "'you'll know something about painting.' She showed him the Odalisque and the source of thing. Fanny Price was a peremptory guide. She would not let him look at the things he wished, and attempted to force his admiration for all she admired. She was desperately in earnest with her study of art, and when Philip, passing in the long gallery a window that looked out on the Tuileries, gay, sunny, and urbane, like a picture by Raffaelli, exclaimed, "'I say, how jolly! Do, let's stop here a minute!' She said indifferently, "'Yes, it's all right, but we've come here to look at pictures.' The autumn air, blithe and vivacious, elated Philip, and when, towards midday, they stood in the great courtyard of the Louvre, he felt inclined to cry like Flanagan, to hell with art. I say, let's do go to one of those restaurants in the Boulmiche and have a snack together, shall we? He suggested. Miss Price gave him a suspicious look. I've got my lunch waiting for me at home, she answered. That doesn't matter. You can eat it tomorrow. Do let me stand you a lunch. End of segment one. Chapter 44, Segment 2 I don't know why you want to. It would give me pleasure, he replied, smiling. They crossed the river, and at the corner of the Boulevard St. Michel, there was a restaurant. Let's go in there. No, I won't go there. It looks too expensive. She walked on firmly, and Philip was obliged to follow. A few steps brought them to a smaller restaurant where a dozen people were already lunching on the pavement under an awning. On the window was announced in large white letters, Déjeuner, 125, fin compris. We couldn't have anything cheaper than this, and it looks quite all right. They sat down at a vacant table and waited for the omelet, which was the first article on the bill of fare. Philip gazed with delight upon the passers-by. His heart went out to them. He was tired, but very happy. I say, look at that man in the blouse. Isn't he ripping? He glanced at Miss Price and, to his astonishment, saw that she was looking down at her plate, regardless of the passing spectacle, and two heavy tears were rolling down her cheeks. "'What on earth's the matter?' he exclaimed. "'If you say anything to me, I shall get up and go at once,' she answered. He was entirely puzzled, but fortunately at that moment the omelette came. He divided it into two, and they began to eat. Philip did his best to talk of indifferent things, and it seemed as though Miss Price were making an effort on her side to be agreeable. 
but the luncheon was not altogether a success. Philip was squeamish, and the way in which Miss Price ate took his appetite away. She ate noisily, greedily, a little like a wild beast in a menagerie, and after she had finished each course, rubbed the plate with pieces of bread till it was white and shining, as if she did not wish to lose a single drop of gravy. They had camembert cheese, and it disgusted Philip to see that she ate the rind and all of the portion that was given her. She could not have eaten more ravenously if she were starving. End of segment two. Chapter 44, Segment 3 Miss Price was unaccountable, and having parted from her on one day with friendliness, he could never tell whether on the next she would not be sulky and uncivil. But he learned a good deal from her. Though she could not draw well herself, she knew all that could be taught, and her constant suggestions helped his progress. Mrs. Otter was useful to him, too. And sometimes Miss Chalice criticized his work. He learned from the glib loquacity of Lawson and from the example of Clutton. But Fanny Price hated him to take suggestions from anyone but herself. And when he asked her help after someone else had been talking to him, she would refuse with brutal rudeness. The other fellows, Lawson, Clutton, Flanagan, chaffed him about her. You be careful, my lad, they said. "'She's in love with you.' "'Oh, what nonsense!' he laughed. "'The thought that Miss Price could be in love with anyone was preposterous. "'It made him shudder when he thought of her uncomeliness, "'the bedraggled hair and the dirty hands, "'the brown dress she always wore, stained and ragged at the hem. "'He supposed she was hard up. "'They were all hard up, but she might at least be clean.' and it was surely possible with the needle and thread to make her skirt tidy. End of segment three. Chapter 44, Segment 4 Philip began to sort his impressions of the people he was thrown in contact with. He was not so ingenuous as in those days which now seem so long ago at Heidelberg, and beginning to take a more deliberate interest in humanity. He was inclined to examine and to criticize. He found it difficult to know Clutton any better after seeing him every day for three months than on the first day of their acquaintance. The general impression at the studio was that he was able. It was supposed that he would do great things, and he shared the general opinion. But what exactly he was going to do, neither he nor anybody else quite knew. He had worked at several studios before Amitrano's, at Julian's, the Beau Arts, and McPherson's, and was remaining longer at Amitrano's than anywhere because he found himself more left alone. He was not fond of showing his work, and unlike most of the young men who were studying art, neither sought nor gave advice. It was said that in the little studio in the Rue Campagne Premier, which served him for workroom and bedroom, he had wonderful pictures which would make his reputation if only he would be induced to exhibit them. He could not afford a model, but painted still life, and Lawson constantly talked of a plate of apples which he declared was a masterpiece. He was fastidious and aiming at something he did not quite fully grasp, 
was constantly dissatisfied with his work as a whole. Perhaps a part would please him, the forearm or the leg and foot of a figure, a glass or a cup in a still life, and he would cut this out and keep it, destroying the rest of the canvas so that when people invited themselves to see his work, he could truthfully answer that he had not a single picture to show. In Brittany he had come across a painter whom nobody else had heard of, a queer fellow who had been a stockbroker and taking up painting at middle age, and he was greatly influenced by his work. He was turning his back on the Impressionists and working out for himself painfully an individual way, not only of painting, but of seeing. Philip felt in him something strangely original. End of segment four. Chapter 44, Segment 5 At Gravier's where they ate, and in the evening at the Versailles or at the Closerie de Lilas, Clutton was inclined to taciturnity. He sat quietly with a sardonic expression on his gaunt face, and spoke only when the opportunity occurred to throw in a witticism. He liked a butt, and was most cheerful when someone was there on whom he could exercise his sarcasm. He seldom talked of anything but painting, and then only with one or two persons whom he thought worthwhile. Philip wondered whether there was in him really anything. His reticence, the haggard look of him, the pungent humor, seemed to suggest personality, but might be no more than an effective mask which covered nothing. With Lawson, on the other hand, Philip soon grew intimate. He had a variety of interests, which made him an agreeable companion. He read more than most of the students, and, though his income was small, loved to buy books. He lent them willingly, and Philip became acquainted with Flaubert and Balzac, with Verlaine, Heredia, and Villiers the Isle Adam. They went to plays together, and sometimes to the gallery of the Opera Comique. There was the Odeon quite near them, and Philip soon shared his friend's passion for the tragedians of Louis Fourteenth and the sonorous Alexandrine. In the Rue Thibault, there were the Concerts Rouge, where, for seventy-five centimes, they could hear excellent music, and get into the bargain something which it was quite possible to drink. The seats were uncomfortable, the place was crowded, the air thick with caporal, horrible to breathe, but in their young enthusiasm they were indifferent. Sometimes they went to the Balbouillet. On these occasions Flanagan accompanied them. His excitability and his roisterous enthusiasm made them laugh. He was an excellent dancer, and before they had been ten minutes in the room, he was prancing round with some little shop-girl whose acquaintance he had just made. The desire of all of them was to have a mistress. It was part of the paraphernalia of the art student in Paris. It gave consideration in the eyes of one's fellows. It was something to boast about. But the difficulty was that they had scarcely enough money to keep themselves and though they argued that French women were so clever, it cost no more to keep two than one, they found it difficult to meet young women who were willing to take that view of circumstances. They had to content themselves, for the most part, with envying and abusing the ladies who received protection from painters of more settled respectability than their own. End of segment five.
Chapter 44, Segment 6 It was extraordinary how difficult these things were in Paris. Lawson would become acquainted with some young thing and make an appointment. For twenty-four hours he would be all in a flutter, and describe the charmer at length to everyone he met. But she never by any chance turned up at the time fixed. He would come to Gravier's very late, ill-tempered, and exclaim, "'Confound it! Another rabbit! I don't know why it is they don't like me. I suppose it's because I don't speak French well, or my red hair. It's too sickening to have spent over a year in Paris without getting hold of anyone.' "'You don't go the right way to work,' said Flanagan. "'He had a long and enviable list of triumphs to narrate. "'And though they took leave not to believe all he said, "'evidence forced them to acknowledge that he did not altogether lie. "'But he sought no permanent arrangement. "'He only had two years in Paris. "'He had persuaded his people to let him come and study art "'instead of going to college.' But at the end of that period, he was to return to Seattle and go to work in his father's business. He had made up his mind to get as much fun as possible into the time, and demanded variety rather than duration in his love affairs. "'I don't know how you get hold of them,' said Lawson furiously. "'There's no difficulty about that, Sonny,' answered Flanagan. "'You just go right in. The difficulty is to get rid of them. That's where you want tact.' Philip was too much occupied with his work, the books he was reading, the plays he saw, the conversation he listened to, to trouble himself with the desire for female society. He thought there would be plenty of time for that when he could speak French more glibly. It was more than a year now since he had seen Miss Wilkinson, and during his first weeks in Paris he had been too busy to answer a letter she had written to him just before he left Blackstable. When another came, knowing it would be full of reproaches and not being just then in the mood for them, he put it aside, intending to open it later. But he forgot, and did not run across it till a month afterwards when he was turning out a drawer to find some socks that had no holes in them. He looked at the unopened letter with dismay. He was afraid that Miss Wilkinson had suffered a good deal, and it made him feel a brute. But she had probably got over the suffering by now. At all events, the worst of it. It suggested itself to him that women were often very emphatic in their expressions. These did not mean so much as when men used them. He had quite made up his mind that nothing would induce him ever to see her again. He had not written for so long that it seemed hardly worthwhile to write now. He made up his mind not to read the letter. End of segment six. Chapter 44, Segment 7 I dare say she won't write again, he said to himself. She can't help seeing the things over. After all, she was old enough to be my mother. She ought to have known better. For an hour or two, he felt a little uncomfortable. His attitude was obviously the right one, but he could not help feeling a little dissatisfaction with the whole business. Miss Wilkinson, however, did not write again nor did she, as he absurdly feared, suddenly appear in Paris to make him ridiculous before his friends. In a little while he clean forgot her. Meanwhile he definitely forsook his old gods. The amazement with which at first he had looked upon the works of the Impressionists changed to admiration. 
and presently he found himself talking as emphatically as the rest on the merits of Manet, Monet, and Degas. He bought a photograph of a drawing by Ingres of the Odalisque and a photograph of the Olympia. They were pinned side by side over his washing stand so that he could contemplate their beauty while he shaved. He knew now quite positively that there had been no painting of landscape before Monet, and he felt a real thrill when he stood in front of Rembrandt's disciples at Emmaus or Velasquez's lady with the flea-bitten nose. That was not her real name, but by that she was distinguished at Gravier's to emphasize the picture's beauty notwithstanding the somewhat revolting peculiarity of the sitter's appearance. With Ruskin, Burne Jones, and Watts, he had put aside his bowler hat and the neat blue tie with white spots which he had worn on coming to Paris, and now disported himself in a soft, broad-brimmed hat, a flowing black cravat, and a cape of romantic cut. He walked along the boulevard du Montparnasse as though he had known it all his life, and by virtuous perseverance he had learnt to drink absinthe without distaste. He was letting his hair grow, and it was only because nature is unkind and has no regard for the immortal longings of youth that he did not attempt a beard. End of segment seventh.